The word of our Lord from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is holy. Your word is powerful. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice in your word and through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, would you please move among us? Would you please minister to our hearts and to our minds? Would you please conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, Lord of all? We pray in his name. Amen. The structure of our text is typical of the Apostle Paul. You might have noticed that it's only composed of two sentences. The first, beginning of verse 15, doesn't, doesn't end until the start of verse 22. That's a pretty long sentence. And then the second one, just two verses, really functions as a continuation of the first sentence which was seven verses. Paul has this way of kind of going on and on about a topic when he gets started. As he often does, the Apostle Paul sets out to express something that seems quite simple enough. And then, as he begins to say what he's wanting to say, all sorts of magic starts to happen. What is he saying? Well, essentially, he's saying what you and I often say to one another. I'm praying for you. That's about it. But the shape that prayer begins to take is quite something. In fact, we might think of it as quite something otherworldly. The apostle's prayer for the recipients of his epistle goes worlds beyond a simple, bless them, Lord. But before we unpack the contents of the prayer, let's first look at what lies behind it. There are two motivating factors behind Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And their motivation in Paul's prayer is expressed in two simple phrases which set the stage for all that follows. For this reason and because I have heard. For this reason looks backward to what preceded it. And because I have heard, looks forward to what follows it. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is motivated by two things. The first thing being what God has done to redeem them. 
And you find that unpacked in verses 3 through 14. What God has done in bringing them to life, in calling them out, in redeeming them by His Son Jesus. But there's another motivating factor to Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and that is the testimony of their response. And that testimony of their response, how they have responded to the grace of God in Christ, it is twofold. It finds a twofold expression in their life. The first is their faith in the Lord Jesus. And the second is their love toward all the saints. His church. They have responded to God in Christ by faith in Jesus. And that faith has produced in them a love for all of God's people. And it's because of that that the Apostle Paul says this prayer that he then offers up. And as we start to unpack the contents of the Apostle's prayer for the Ephesians, notice first of all the triune shape of his prayer. Paul is not praying to some generic deity, some unnamed God out there, some unknown deity. In fact, the only instance in which he uses the categorical term God is explicitly in relation to the Father and the Son. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to whom is the Apostle Paul's prayer directed? It is directed to the one the Apostle calls the Father of Glory. The Father of glory revealed in the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Lord Jesus. The Father of glory who is at work in the world through the church by His Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is not just the recipient of Paul's prayer, but the triune God Himself is also the basis of what Paul prays. To help us focus our attention, let's stop for a moment and focus on what seems like a simple enough phrase in the middle of verse 17. Notice how Paul refers to Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he suggesting? Better yet, what is he insisting? He is insisting on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, most of our English translations of the Bible do us a disservice when they translate the phrase Jesus Christ or its variant Christ Jesus, which you find in some passages. They read as though Christ is merely part of Jesus' name, but in fact, it's actually a title. You've heard me say this multiple times In fact, not very long ago. The term Christ has become so much an ordinary part of our verbiage that much of the church has simply forgotten what the word even means. Christ is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. And so when you encounter the phrase Jesus Christ in the New Testament, stop for a moment and think, Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. 
And when you encounter the phrase Christ Jesus, stop just for a moment and think, the Christ, Jesus, or the Messiah, Jesus. But that begs the question, what is a Christ? Or what is a Messiah? In Hebrew, the, the, the term Messiah means simply anointed or smeared with oil or poured over with oil. And in the Old Testament, the priests were anointed with oil, marking them as instruments of Yahweh to serve him, to mediate Yahweh's presence to his people and Yahweh's people to the holy presence of Yahweh. But with the establishment of the monarchy in Old Testament Israel, another office became associated even more with being anointed with oil to serve as Yahweh's instrument. And that was the office of the king. As the Old Testament then unfolds, Israel begins to anticipate and to look for Yahweh to raise up a king who will sit on David's throne. We heard about it in the Uh, the Ezekiel reading this morning. To sit on David's throne and to rule over not just Israel, but indeed to rule over all the nations of the earth. Yahweh promised His people a king of righteousness who would redeem His people and would establish justice throughout the land. And when the Apostle Paul mentions our Lord Jesus Christ, Not only is he saying that the crucified Jesus of Nazareth is indeed Yahweh's Messiah, his king, he's further insisting that this crucified Jesus of Nazareth is Lord over all, over all of creation, over all things in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And notice that he says that goes for not just now in the current age, but also in the one to come. He's given him the name that is above all names. In his epistle to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul will add on, so that at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that this Jesus of Nazareth is Lord over all to the glory of the Father. As our priest, Christ is our mediator to God the Father. And as our King, He is Lord over all creation. But that then raises a significant concern, doesn't it? If Jesus is Lord, what's wrong with the world? Why is it in such a mess? The sermon in the New Testament to the Hebrews acknowledges this dilemma, this conundrum, this problem. And it offers really a simple but redemptive response. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, the preacher, the writer says, in putting everything in subjection to Him, that is to Jesus, the Son, He, that is the Father, left nothing outside His control. And then he acknowledges, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who was for a little while 
made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He does not resist or run away from or back down from the tension of declaring that Jesus is Lord over all and yet seeing that the world is broken and in need of full and final redemption. But he says somehow in the mystery of God, that brokenness of the world and that lordship of Jesus finds its meeting place in the actual scars of Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so we rest assured that the triune God is at work in the world through the church as it catches glimpses of the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Jesus. And further, the triune God is at work in the world through the church as it lives out and lives into conformity to the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Jesus. Yes, this world is a mess, but it is our Father's world. And so we pray. And because Jesus is King, our prayers, as the Apostle Paul's is, should be bigger and brighter than the banality of basic blessings. He's praying to the God who raised His Son Jesus from the dead. He's praying to the God who can do all things, who spoke the worlds into existence by His Son. Our prayers ought to be animated with the life of God. Because our prayers are not just empty words that we toss up to the ceiling to a God that we hope is out there. Our prayers are directed to the one whose very son bears the scars and the wounds of a redeemed world. Yes, the world is a mess, but Jesus is king. And because Jesus is king, our relationship with him should be personal and powerful. Notice the language that the Apostle Paul uses. In the English Standard Version, which I read from, and in many of the translations that you probably have in front of you, you'll find that it mentions kind of in abstract and and, in very kind of technical terms, in the knowledge of. He says that in... um, At the end of verse 17... That the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And again, that sounds, it, it sounds very wooden. It sounds very, um, very abstract. It sounds very clinical. But what he's literally saying is that the Father of glory would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation as we know Him. 
or in knowing Him, in knowing the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. He wants us to personally know Him, to intimately know Him, to experientially know Him. And so again, our relationship with Him, because Jesus is King, it should be personal, but it should also be powerful. Because the living and loving God invites us into a personal relationship with Himself. The tri-personal Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know Him. We know Him because He has made Himself known to us in His Son, Jesus. And He invites us into His inner life of love through the wooing of His Holy Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Yes, the world is a mess. But in the resurrection of Jesus, the Father has raised us to new life with our exalted King. And so because Jesus is King, we must live victoriously and valiantly. I'm convinced that we're so fixated on just not disappointing Jesus that we often miss the opportunity afforded us to please Him. Sometimes we think that life is just about getting through. It is just about endurance. And yes, the Scriptures call us to endure to the end. But not in some form of drudgery. We think life is just about getting through and that one day we'll receive the inheritance prepared for us on some formless cloud in the heights of heaven for a disembodied eternity. Maybe we'll inherit a harp of some sort. But that gets the good news of the gospel all wrong. Jesus, as Lord over creation, will redeem all creation, our bodies included, not just our souls. And so we await as the prophets declared and as the apostles insisted, new heavens and a new earth. Our bodies will be resurrected, raised to new life. And as fully redeemed, re-embodied people, we will enjoy the new creation our Lord will make. But what's more than that is, notice whose inheritance the Apostle Paul mentions. Like me, when you hear that word inheritance, you probably think, oh, heaven that we're to gain. He does mention the hope to which we are called. But notice again whose inheritance the Apostle Paul mentions. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Here the Apostle Paul is talking about what the Father is preparing for himself in the church. What the Father is going to get to enjoy in your life and in mine. That's a whole different way of thinking about it than we are often accustomed to thinking. He says, our eyes being enlightened by the Spirit of God. His desire 
is that we will then personally and experientially know three things. The hope to which God in Christ has called us. The riches of His, the Father's glorious inheritance in the saints. What the Father wants to receive in us. And thirdly, the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. And you know how it then ends. He begins unpacking that power. It is the power that was at work of His great might that He was working in Christ when He did four things. When He raised Him from the dead. When He then seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And then He goes on far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion, even above every name that is named in this age and the one to come. But the third thing He says about what God has done in displaying His great might in His Son Jesus is that He then put all things under Jesus' feet. Again, He is Lord over all. But then lastly, the fourth thing that He says is the display of the Father's great resurrection might that He did in His Son Jesus is that He then gave Christ as head over all things to the church. He has given us Christ as our head. And we are His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. What the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians, and therefore what is available to us as the people of God, is a far grander and far greater experience of His power and His might than we are so accustomed to living. We are so accustomed to hearing that we are simply wretches and that if we'll pray a magic prayer, God will get us to heaven at the end of our wretched lives. But that's not Paul's prayer. That's not his prayer for the Ephesians. That's not what is afforded us and made available to us in the contents of Scripture. Instead, they declare to us a Jesus who is King over all and is therefore Lord of all creation. And it's this Jesus that we proclaim. It is His grace that we proclaim. It is His power that we proclaim. It is His life that fills us. It is His love that animates us. May we be completely His to the extent even that we will live accordingly. He has a great inheritance in us that He desires to receive. Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. We thank You for Your power that raises the dead. We thank You We thank You for Your Son, Jesus.
our King, Lord over all, we thank You for making us Your own and for enabling us to live by the power of Your Spirit to the glory of Your holy name. We pray that You would enable us by Your Spirit to live as disciples of Christ for His image to be remade in us. Make us like Jesus, we pray. Help us to live like Jesus in the world that He died to redeem. Make us to be conformed even to His suffering and death that one day we will be made like Him also in His great and glorious resurrection. We pray in His name. Amen.